0: Hello and welcome to A Skeptic's Guide to Conspiracy, the podcast that examines conspiracy theory, conspiracy fact, and those who promote these theories. I will be your host, Mike Bowler, as we take a look at Who Believes... What do they believe and why do they believe it? As a bit of a departure from my semi-regular what's happening in the news, I've been undertaking this uh, ongoing project, trying to understand not just the conspiracy themselves, but people behind them, people who believe... People who promote, people who profit, uh, you name it. i have been looking at and trying to get a a better picture of this conspiracy world. So this is going to be a series of of shows that I'm I'm actually kind of tr- trying to structure it as possibly a book or something along that lines. Maybe even who knows? Maybe a video or something like that. So I'm going to start presenting some of the chapters. These are not. Uh, maybe not necessarily 100%, but I'm going to say I'm in the 80, 90% range on these articles. So I am going to start off with some history conspiracies have been around for quite a long time. Some contemporary historians point to the American Revolution being based somewhat in conspiracy. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that assessment, but I, it does seem like some falsehoods were being used to promote the idea of leaving England and starting a new country. In the early 1800s, a movement grew out of the belief that Freemasonry was plotting a conspiracy. I've yet to find out what that conspiracy might have been, but writers of the time seem to believe that it was Freemasons were supportive of Alexander Hamilton's ideas of a central bank and trade with England. This was contrary to the Jeffersonian Thomas Jefferson uh, ideas uh, that the United States was to be an agricultural nation and his general opposition to an industrial expansion as supported by Andrew Jackson and his followers. But oddly enough, this conspiracy would set set things up for future conspiracies. The anti-Freemasons had gained a sizable constituency and began to make their political voices heard, finding themselves winning seats in Congress and the Senate. Fortunately, the anti-Mason fervor died down as the slavery issue became more uh, pronounced and vocal. And this was the world... uh, a fellow by the name of Ignatius Donnelly found himself in. Donnelly was an early writer on the subject of Atlantis. Donnelly believed that Atlantis was a real place based on not only Plato's writings, but included passages in the Bible and various early European religious writings on the subject of a great flood. Now, Donnelly, by trade, was a lawyer who eventually became a politician being elected congressman from Minnesota. During his time off in Washington, he would spend time in the Library of Congress, reading about these various descriptions of great floods and other ancient disaster legends, coming to the conclusion that Atlantis once existed and was destroyed during one of these floods and natural disasters. He links some of that, some of the scientific discoveries and hypotheses, on the Origin of Continents. So when Donnelly wrote his book, Atlantis, The Antediluvian World, most of the scientific community accepted the writings, though there were a few handful of skeptics that would, who had and certainly had questioned Donnelly's conclusions. A bunch of Donnelly's source material were legends, which may prove annoyable from a scientific standpoint. There had been no di- direct observation, so... Donnelly's ideas were certainly subject to questioning. Apparently, this did not set well with Donnelly and proceeded to write a second book, Ragnarok, Age of Fire and Gravel. In this book, Donnelly argues that an enormous comet hit the Earth 12,000 years ago, resulting in widespread fires, floods, poison gases, and unusually vicious and prolonged winters. This catastrophe destroyed the more advanced civilizations, forcing its terrified population to seek shelter in caves as cave dwellers, and they lost all knowledge of art, literature, music, philosophy, and engineering. Again, he sources this book from various uh, culture myths. Ragnarok would would be universally panned by critics, and eventually many of his supporters turned against Donnelly. Many of these arguments are contradictory, again, relying on legends as opposed to actual evidence. So with the failure of Ragnarok, Donnelly then turned his sights on William Shakespeare. He supports the notion that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. This was the work of Francis Bacon. Donnelly believes that a code was used, embedded in Shakespeare's work, that supposedly links the writings to Bacon as opposed to Shakespeare. Again, Donnelly's work was critically rejected by his contemporaries and this pretty much ended Donnelly's work in these various pseudo-history and pseudo-science. Donnelly would pass away on January 1st, 1901 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but his legacy lives on. Today, believers in the Shakespeare-didn't-write-Shakespeare conspiracy still uses Donnelly's secret code as a basis for their beliefs. And this would be, again, also similar to the Atlantis pseudo-science, much of Donnelly's uh, uh, ideas still live on in the modern belief in Atlantis. Now, to be fair with Donnelly's work, he was probably more of a product of his time. New discoveries in 1880s, 1890s, new scientific ideas like the theory of evolution, and germ theory was certainly changing people's life. And of course, which in turn allowed science to move another step forward. This cycle would continue pretty much to the modern day. With the new science, we get new technology, which pushed science forward, but also created new conveniences and to improve human life. But along this track, A classic example of this was the eugenics movement. Francis Galton, building on Darwin's theories on evolution, proposed the idea that all human traits are inherited from previous generations, not only the physical appearance but various social traits, such as criminality, poverty, and even alcoholism were traits inherited from past generations originally viewed as a science, social workers and scientists began to explore the roots of these various undesirable traits, such as criminality and so on, and determined that the evidence pointed to certain racial groups that were more prone to these undesirable traits. This particular science gained popularity in the early 1900s, reaching a point where various states would begin to enact laws, including anti-miscegenation laws and the legal sterilization of desirable people. Now, while there were, now, while there were very few challenges to the notion of genetic predisposition to undesirable social traits. The movement declined after the end of the Second World War, when in part many of the supporters of the eugenics movement had passed away, but the revelations from the Nuremberg trials of Adolf Hitler's justification for the extermination of the Jewish population and Eastern Europeans was based on eugenics law's Uh, Created in the United States. So now the United States in the 1950s faced new issues. The disintegration of U.S. Soviet Union relations, the rise of communism, and the heightened level of racism targeting African Americans created an environment. To create conspiracy in the 1950s, the main concern was communism. There are certainly concerns on all level levels, but notal, notably, Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin' investigation into communists in the U.S. government. Part of this anti-communist search involved a not very well-known conspiracist by the name of Myron Fagan. Fagan was a failed playwright who wrote very nondescript and somewhat derivative plays, and rarely got any interest from producers. Because of this, Fagan believed that he was being targeted. By communists in Hollywood. In 1945, Fagan claimed he saw secret documents of the meetings in Yalta shown to him by author John T. Flynn that led him to write the play Red Rainbow and Thieves' Paradise. Written in 1945, Red Rainbow portrays Roosevelt, Stalin, and others in Yalta plotting to deliver the Balkans, Eastern Europe, and Berlin to Stalin. Left wing groups in New York opposed the production of this. the play and Fagan had difficulty getting financial backing to produce it. Fagan took the play to Hollywood where he encountered even more protests against against it than he had in New York. So in the late 1940s, Fagan launched a one-man crusade against what he claimed to be a red conspiracy in Hollywood. Out of this crusade would come the Cinema Education Guild. He would continue to produce anti-communist pamphlets such as Hollywood Reds on the Run, and bulletins for the remainder of his life. Between 1967 and 68, Fagan recorded a set of three spoken word LP records entitled The Illuminati, the Council on Foreign Relations. The records presented the Bavarian Illuminati, the Protocols of Zion, and international politics as phases of a single grand Luciferian conspiracy directed by the Rothschild family. John T. Flynn is also another character that appears early in these Conspiracy*. In the 1930s, he was heavily involved in the American First Movement, an isolationist group trying to prevent the United States entry into the Second World War. Flynn, a newspaper writer from Minnesota, would begin to gain popularity and eventually moving to the Chicago Tribune. Flynn was a staunch supporter of Franklin Roosevelt and deal. While in Minnesota, he would write extensively on Roosevelt and why he should be president. But after Roosevelt's election, for some unknown reason, turned against Roosevelt and the New Deal. There there is, of course, speculation that if Flynn was vying for a cabinet position, perhaps as a speechwriter, but was passed by Roosevelt. So in 1933, in earnest, Flynn attacked every aspect of Roosevelt and his New Deal. Later in 1930, Flynn, seeing the problem in Europe and Germany slipping into dictatorship, Flynn's concern was America would be involved in this future war. And seeing that the United States was aligning itself with England and France, became convinced that Roosevelt was going to get us into a war. So, working with some students from Yale, bringing Bringing together, students with business with business leaders formed an organization known as America First. Flynn would not play a serious role in America First. This was left to Robert Wood, vice president of Sears Roebuck, and he also had been executive rewards. And he would be the creator of Allstate Insurance. As a staunch Republican, he had opposed, been opposed to Roosevelt's social programs along with a number of Midwestern businessmen. That as chairman of America First, he would oppose not only U.S. intervention in any future war with Germany, but also lobby to even prevent the United States from building an army. This seems contradictory, but from the evidence I could find, America First was very instrumental in preventing from developing new weapons and supplying men and material for forward basis and such. America first would close down shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So with America in the Second World War, Flynn would remain critical of various Roosevelt programs that were created in the aftermath of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Flynn would limit his attacks on Roosevelt, generally going after war production policies and rationing. During the run-up to the election of 1944, John Flynn became aware of the United States cracking the Japanese diplomatic codes in 1941 and became convinced that Roosevelt was aware of the attack on Pearl Harbor and allowed it to happen. This is one of the basis of Pearl Harbor conspiracies. Flynn apparently shared this information with John Dewey, who was running against Roosevelt in 1944, but Dewey decided not to use that in his campaign, since it involved sensitive military intelligence that it would not be proper to use as a political tool. Now, while Dewey took the high road, Flynn waited until... The signing of the surrender of Japan to release this information. The front-page story on the Chicago Tribune lays out the entire story that the U.S. had intercepted the Japanese codes and were aware of Japanese attentions against Pearl Harbor. But with the passing of Roosevelt in 1945, Flynn then took up the anti-communist crusade, siding with McCarthy. Historians and biographers of Flynn during this period between 1945 and his passing in 1964 seems to be indecisive on what actions he may have taken. During this time. While still a staunch interventionalist, it is unclear if he was anti communist. It does seem clear that he had semi retired from political activism but had played some roles politically. Now it appears that during the 1960s and 70s, a shift occurred where conspiracies had moved from pur- purely political two general concepts or ideas converting them into conspiracies from the revelations coming out of the Vietnam War and the Pentagon papers to various revelations into the actions of the FBI and CIA that is MKUltra and COINTELPRO Coin the document uh, operation Northwoods the attempt on Castro in Cuba operation Paperclip the US acquisition of Nazi scientists and the Tuskegee syphilis study where African Americans infected with syphilis were denied treatment to see how syphilis spread through a population. A very few cases where it comes to conspiracy using these government-backed transgressions, giving the conspiracy theorists a foundation to build upon. That is, if the government agency that, either proposed or implemented these particular plans, they were capable of implementing other plans. This logic is being used for the 9-11 conspiracies, Kennedy conspiracy, Flat Earth, Chemtrail conspiracies, and the Moon Landing hoax conspiracy. And of course, you find these elements in the UFO community and the globalist conspiracy. So what is the media's role in this? Considering the difference in mass media from the late 1800s to the 1950s, the main outlet early on for news and information recited solely in printed materials such as newspapers and books. In the 1910s to the 1950s, radio would play an increasing role in mass media, and then in 1950 to the present, television would play an increasing role in disseminating this information. And now, with the advent of digital communications in the 1980s to present, a rise in belief in pseudoscience and conspiracy got its real push forward in the 1980s with the advent of personal computers, a new form of media. The computer bulletin board offered new ways to spread ideas of. ...of a conspiracy. This didn't necessarily change the content of the conspiracies, just made it faster to get out to the general public. And with the ad- advent of the internet in the 1990s to present, it, this was able to make the information much easier to create and disseminate on and cross vast distance almost instantaneously. So not only fairly modern conspiracies found new audiences, old conspiracies could be resurrected and disseminated amongst a new audience... So, from a historical standpoint, nothing really changed with the belief in conspiracies and pseudoscience, but just the way it can be delivered and sold to the general public. Again, in the early days, of conspiracy remained fairly local. Early Masonic conspiracies were centered more in New York and New England states, but thanks to the internet, Masonic conspiracies have found audience all over the United States and, in a way, around the globe. So, that's the end of the first chapter. My next chapter is looking at who believes... And I'll save that for next week so I'd like to thank you for listening I think I'm finally just for uh, perhaps a kind of a general uh, some general news it looks like my uh, rush project is finally over I can finally start spending some time getting some of these recordings done get them out to you and hopefully be back on a regular basis and again this is a this is some these are some writings i've been working on I'll be putting out these shows i've got about i got five chapters written uh, i've got uh, a sixth chapter that's in works hopefully uh i can uh, put these out maybe every two weeks or so because they're not really com- totally complete you could probably even tell from <laughs> probably could tell from uh, the way that it was presented this first chapter there's there's probably, you've probably now got a bunch of questions to ask and how certain things interreacted. So uh, just throwing it out there, uh, feel free to critique it. Um, I'm st- unfortunately, I'm still trying to figure out why email from my, the mikebowler.com feedback address isn't getting to my email reader, and I'm just wondering if it's being blocked. So um, I've been trying to figure out that. I thought it might have been Comcast blocking my domain. Maybe there is somebody out somewhere out there blocking my domain, or I might be on a blacklist for some strange reason, or perhaps I'm starting to get Rat roped into some of the, uh, oh, that, I'm, I don't want to use the term censorship, but, you know, the uh, what's happening with trying to shut down hate speech on the internet. It's possible that because I talk about these subjects, not really realizing I'm attempting to debunk these things, that I'm somehow got into some type of block. So I'd like to thank you for listening. This is episode 132, recorded on June 21st, 2019. I'd like to thank you for listening, and good night.